The scripture reading today is taken from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in a swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we uh, get going, I'll just introduce myself again. I'm Brant, if you haven't met me. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church. It's my joy to, to serve you this morning. And I'll ask that you pray with me, that we ask God's help together as we jump into this text. Um, Father, we, uh, we do. We just come to you and we ask for your help. Lord, would you show us wonderful things in your word? Lord, would you show us wonderful things in your word? Would you fix our eyes on Jesus who has come, who is coming again, that we would have life in him? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is this traditional period uh, in church practice where the four Sundays before Christmas are used to celebrate the birth and the coming of Jesus. And as you probably are well aware, uh, it's November. The first Advent week this year is in November. So if it feels like it's come a little bit earlier than usual, well, it kind of has in, in some ways. It's the 28th, you know, this is, this is a bit of a different. Um, but what that means just so you know, if you haven't looked at your calendars yet, is that the day after Christmas, Boxing Day, is a Sunday this year. And so I expect all of you to still be here. So why are you, why are you laughing? You think this is a joke, don't you? Just kidding. Uh, but uh, just to keep in mind that uh, it's a little bit earlier this year and that Boxing Day, uh, we will have a gathering again here uh, at the end of our, our Advent season. Well, this year, we're going to be teaching through the narrative of Luke chapter 2 in our Advent series. And what Luke shows us in Luke chapter 2 is really beautiful. It begins with the story that we traditionally associate with um, the birth of Jesus. So we're going to look at the birth of Jesus this morning. But then in the next three weeks of Advent, we'll be looking at three different responses in chapter 2 of Luke uh, to the birth of Jesus. How did people receive this news? What did they do when they saw him? And there's really these beautiful moments they'll be considering uh, each of the subsequent weeks of Advent. So we're going to jump in. It's, it's Advent and love it or hate it. Advent means it's Christmas time and love it or hate it. Christmas time means that there is Christmas music everywhere. So I'm not sure if you're the kind of person that loves or hates Christmas. Music, but uh, at least you're familiar that it is everywhere right now. The other day, I was driving my son home from school, and uh, I had left my phone um, in my kitchen that, that evening before, and so it was out of batteries, which meant that I forego Spotify, which meant that on the way home, I opened up the, the radio button, 
I'm going to use that word on my, on my dash of my uh, van. And I had to start searching for stations. I felt archaic, like this is a stone age or something. And I found a 24-7 Christmas channel and began to listen to Christmas music with my kids. And most of the music on this particular 24-7 Vancouver Christmas channel is not religious Christ- uh, Christmas music, but secular Christmas music. And as I listened to these songs, I was so struck by them. And I don't usually think profound thoughts in listening to Christmas music, but this is one of those moments. And what I thought was that all this music, all this music I'm listening to seems to recognize that there's supposed to be something special about Christmas. But none of these songs seems to know what that thing is. They recognize something is special about Christmas and Christmas music. Brian Adams, saying idealistically in his Christmas time, said there's something about Christmas time that makes you wish it was Christmas every day. Great song, but Brian Adams didn't tell me what that something was. And Darlene's, uh, Darlene loves Christmas, baby, please come home. I could hear the longing in her voice for her loved one to be home and present with her at Christmas time. But I wasn't given any reason why Christmas time over any other period of time in the year was the time when, when that would have been especially meaningful. The why question wasn't answered. And song after song I was listening to seemed to be saying, even if it isn't our present experience, and for many of us, <clears throat> excuse me, and for many of us, it really isn't our experience. Christmas should be a wonderful time. Even if it's not our present experience, Christmas should be a wonderful time. But does anybody remember why? So that's the question for us this morning, I think. Why is Christmas wonderful? Why is Christmas wonderful? Well, we're going to cut to the chase. I'm going to give you the answer right away. And Christmas is wonderful for one reason. Christmas is wonderful because Jesus is wonderful. Christmas is wonderful because Jesus himself is wonderful. And this Advent season, I'm praying for for us as a church. I'm praying for all of you, even if you're a visitor this morning, I've been praying for you as you come in this week. My prayer has been that this Advent season, we'd refocus our lives around Jesus. There's lots of suffering that comes up at Christmas time. Lots of distractions that come up at Christmas time. But what we need more than anything this Sunday and the weeks to come is to refocus all of our hearts and our attentions around Jesus. That we'd see him for who he really is. And that we'd be changed by him, by his Holy Spirit to become like him in this world. And that's really why we're looking at Luke's gospel this morning in chapter 2. Because Luke knows that Jesus is wonderful. He knows that Jesus is wonderful. And he's going to show us three reasons Jesus is worthy of all of our love and our adoration in this text. So here's the three reasons why. He's going to show us that Jesus entered history to save us. He's going to show us that Jesus is the one that we, even you presently here, the one that you're really longing for, even if you don't know it yet. He's going to show us that Jesus is glorious in his humility, his love, and his compassion. Those are the three things. He entered history. It's the one we're longing for, glorious in his humility, his love, and his compassion. So look with me now at our first point, the way Jesus entered history, and look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and what Luke tells us. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So the first thing that, that Luke tells us about Jesus in this chapter is that, is that Jesus is not like Santa Claus. Jesus is not like Santa Claus. Because the Santa Claus story uh, is a myth that has grown out of history based on things in the past and kind of snowballed, pun intended, into what it is today. Santa Claus is based off of the Christian charity of a Jesus-following Christian named Nicholas who lived in the 4th century. Nicholas was a bishop of a place called Myra in what is modern-day Turkey. But since then, that story has grown to include the North Pole and owls and reindeer and flying sleds and accumulated other myths throughout history to kind of be added. To. But the Jesus story is not like the Santa story. And by the way, Jesus is very different than Santa Claus in another way, because it, as you all know or should know, Santa is just an anagram for Satan, right? Just rearrange the letters and you get Satan. So, you know, interpret that how you will. Talk to your kids about it later after the gathering. Uh, you know, this is very different than, than what's going on in this text. That's a joke. I don't think that's very serious, but it's a joke, just in case people are, are really worried at this point. What does this church teach about Santa Claus? Well, when we open the Bible to Luke's account about Jesus, we're opening up something very different than the Santa Claus myth. We're opening up a carefully assembled account of Jesus' life. It's an account that was written within 20 to 30 years after Jesus actually lived on this earth by people, by Luke, who was friends with the eyewitnesses of Jesus. You might be aware that we often write histories in human history about events that have passed a long time afterward. This is not one of those times. This is a time when Luke is writing, knowing the first-hand witnesses, talking to them, interviewing them, trying to put together a careful history of the events about Jesus. It's a primary source document. It's grounded in verifiable history. And the history that it's grounded in is important for us to contend with, and it's why Luke tells us about it. Because it's a history of suffering, of brokenness, and of oppression. Just look again at verses 1 to 3. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So Caesar Augustus, he was the first of the Roman Caesars. He was the first emperor in the Roman Empire. And he consolidated Roman power around himself. He lived from uh, 31 BC to 14 AD. He founded a dynasty and he made himself and all of his descendants Caesars. He, they added themselves to the Roman pantheon as gods to be worshipped in the empire. And his dominion it led to what's called the Pax Romana, which is this time of unique peace in human history. But it was peace, to be clear, and you need to know this, it was peace that was by the sword. It was peace that was by the sword. So for the territories and the peoples conquered by Rome, this was a difficult time. It was a time of being squeezed and pressed and subjected to one's overlords. And Luke tells us 
The context for Jesus' birth is this Roman government collecting information from the people of Syria in order to tax them more. It's Mary and Joseph experiencing hardship because they're caught up in the wheels of a gigantic, of a gigantic empire. And they're forced to leave their place. They lived in Nazareth and travel 144 kilometers to Bethlehem. Mary is nine months pregnant. She's on a donkey. She's walking. And this poor couple are being forced to this new place. See, Luke is showing us a Jesus, a Savior, who isn't a mythical figure, but a historical one. And the real history that we find Jesus located in tells us something so important. It shows us that Jesus is not like a Caesar, living in a comfortable palace with servants all around him, as he elevates himself over and above the people. Jesus is a savior king who enters into the deep, deep suffering of his people to save them. What's most remarkable about this, I think, is that when we ask the Bible are really hard questions, you mean these are the hard questions that you're wrestling with, questions like, why does bad stuff happen in this world? Why does bad stuff how come terrible things happen in this world? And when we ask the Bible that question, the Bible is so consistent with its answer. The Bible says, these things happen in this world because of human sin. Because you and I have this heart problem. <laughs> you have to admit it, I think, when you think about your family gathering and maybe your reactions to, to getting together with your mom or your, or your brother coming up, and you, and you know that there's a tension in that relationship and it's not all their fault. And you reflect on your own life and you realize there's something. And selfishness as well. You see, there's a heart problem that is at the center of this story. And it's the, the problem that produces the, the conflict in our family relationships, the conflict in our cities, and even the conflict in the history of the world. And yet, Jesus entered that story. See, Jesus didn't have to enter into our story of our suffering that we caused, but he chose to. So the first reason Jesus is wonderful is because he entered real history. He entered our real suffering because of our sin in order to save us from it. Now, at Christmas time, I think many of us are more aware of our own suffering than any other time of year. Isn't that true? I think there's a longing inside of us that gets provoked at Christmas time. Because as we, we come to this season, we realize all the things that we don't have. Right? We start and what home is. And we realize there's a problem because the, the home that I, I long for isn't the home that I have. Maybe the family that I long for isn't the family that I have. Maybe I'm looking forward more to the Christmas dinner being over than it beginning. Right? We long for joy. We long for hope. I think many of us struggle at Christmas time with feelings of hopelessness. This is a, a time of deep depression, a time when, when suicides increase historically and statistically. We long for wholeness at Christmas time. 
But it's precisely into the context of human longing that Jesus has come. It's precisely into this context that Luke shows us in our second point that he's the one that we long for. He's the one that you are longing for even if you don't recognize it yet. Look at verses 4 to 5 and see what I'm talking about. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So this text is more than a lot of commas. There's a lot of commas in this text. It's one you can trip over easily, but it's more than that. It's a text that's full of meaning and hope for the ancient Jewish reader of Scripture. And it was those things because when we read it, we're like, okay, that doesn't really mean anything to me, Brant. <laughs> I don't really understand why you're talking about hope and longing in this context. It was meaningful to them because those words Bethlehem and David were so loaded with meaning and expectation for the people familiar with the Jewish scriptures. You see, when you read the Bible, you need to understand that hope for a better tomorrow is always tied to the hope for a king. A hope for the king. A good king. And we have a hard time, I think, getting our minds around that today because we don't live in a monarchy. And actually, even when we talk about monarchies today, we don't usually associate them with good things. But that's not the case in the Bible, where hope is tied to the reign of a good king. And in the story of suffering that people of Israel experienced, God sent prophets again and again to tell them of the time that was coming. When God himself would restore their fortunes and bless them through the rule of this coming good king. One of these prophecies that we commonly read at Christmas time, it comes from the book of Micah in chapter 5 verses 2 to 5. But I want to read it for you right now. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. See, the context of Micah that this ancient passage was given in is the context of the ancient Jewish people suffering and being conquered by their enemies. And Micah and the other prophets like him, they were really clear as they wrote about these things that this is all happening as part of God's judgment against them for turning away from him, for being so faithless to him. It was a consequence of their sin. And because of that, these prophecies are full of these judgment oracles. But between these judgment oracles are sprinkled these incredible passages of hope that it won't always be this way that something will change. The good king is coming. And these hopes and this better day is consistently, constantly tied to the son of David. The son of King David, Israel's most famous king. One day, one of his descendants will be a king who delivers them. He'd be a son of David, but he would be greater than David. 
and he would save his people from their sins. And he would even deal with that stuff that's inside of us that causes all these problems in the world that we live in. He would change our sinful hearts and turn us toward himself and fill us with his love. He would forgive us. He would deal with the shame and the embarrassment and the guilt that plagues us as human beings because of our sin. And he would bring peace to the reign of this son that was coming. This is a story and this is the hope that Luke understands when he tells his readers these words. I'm going to read them again. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. See, Luke wants us to see already in the first verses of the birth narrative that though Quirinius was moving by the arm and the power given to him and the authority he had in Rome, God was moving over all of these things. Moving a couple, impoverished, educated, to his appointed place to accomplish his purposes, to save through his promised king, the son of David. You know, I I think that some of us, though, have a hard time believing that this could be good news for us. I think some of us have a hard time believing in good news, period. Maybe too many bad things have happened lately. You know, maybe you just never won the roll up the the uh, rim to win, right? You never won the McDonald's Monopoly, so you stopped playing, right? That kind of hope's just not for you, right? But in more significant ways, I mean, you just stopped hoping, I want you to see that this prophetic fulfillment is full of hope, even for the person who has lost all reason to be hopeful in themselves. It's kind of the point. It's full of hope for people like us who've lost hope that we can make a better world, that I can be the solution to my own story. One of the ways we see this is that Bethlehem was a city of David. And of course, David is the great king who was so blessed by God, but we forget his backstory. There's an important backstory here. The backstory is that when God chose to bless David and use him, David wasn't very great. He wasn't great at all. When God chose David, he sent a prophet named Samuel to Jesse, David's father, to point out which of uh, of Jesse's eight boys God had chosen. And famously, there's a lineup of boys and there's only seven there. And Samuel's like, no, that's not the one that God's chosen. That's the one that, that God's chosen. This isn't the one. This isn't the one. Hey, Jesse, are there any more? Jesse's like, yeah, but he's the youngest. He's kind of the runt. You know, I have him out back with with the sheep. You don't want to talk to him. You're sure he didn't choose the handsome, strong boy right here that I have on my left? And God hadn't chosen him. God hadn't chosen him. God chose David, the youngest and the weakest. And similarly, when we read the prophecy in Micah, the same sort of thing is going on because Bethlehem is a nobody town just like David is a nobody brother. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little, just like David, you're too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. See, Bethlehem is a nothing city. It's not big enough to be numbered with the important clans in the tribe of Judah where kings come from. And hundreds of years after Micah was written, when Mary and Joseph are on the way to Bethlehem, 
beleaguered and forgotten. It's not just small, it's suffering, it's forgotten, only hanging on to this memory of a hope and the promise of God. But it's this city, the city that's lost hope in itself, that God chooses. This city that God chooses to pour out his blessing where the promised one is born, the little forgotten suffering town of Bethlehem. Christ City, this is really good news for us. It's good news because it means the promise that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem means we don't have to be strong enough or wise enough or good enough or smart enough or anything else to have God look favorably upon us and bless us. This is hope for the weak and for the broken like you and me. He's the God who loves to act in our lives to fulfill our longings for hope and for peace, for goodness, even when we can't make any of those things happen. Simply because we look to him to trust him. Look to him to give what only he can give. You see, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God loves to bless the weak and the foolish and the nobodies who long for his appearing. And we have every reason, I think, to focus the longings of our hearts on Jesus this morning. There's every reason for us to be doing this together. Because Luke shows us that Jesus hasn't just entered our suffering in real history as a Savior we long for. That's all true. We've looked at that. That's beautiful. But he's more than that. He does all of this with glorious, humble, compassionate love for you and for me. Look at verses 6 to 7 in our third point. Glorious humility. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And see, here in the manger scene, Luke shows us the incredible humility of Jesus' birth. This is a poor couple traveling under the dictates of a foreign occupying power forced to take shelter in a stable for animals because there's no room for them in the inn. Here in this story, we see Jesus, tender and weak. I got to hold an infant, a newborn yesterday. I was just reminded of how frail they are, how small they are. Jesus, weak and frail, dependent on Mary for his life. Born in a stable and sleeping in a feed trough. I think we can see the poverty that Jesus was birthed into plainly in this text. But we only truly grasp the incredible glory that's in this text in Jesus' humility if we see the exalted reality of Jesus right next to the humility of the story. You see, Advent and the glory of Jesus is all about the contrast. We need to understand and his humility paired with Jesus and his exaltation as God. So the backdrop text we need to contrast Luke 2 with then is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, all the way to verse 20. I'm going to read it for you. Because in this text, the apostle Paul shows us Jesus, not the humble infant, 
Jesus, the exalted God over all. He says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace in this broken, sinful world, broken by our sin, that he would make peace by the blood of his cross. Christ City, one of the, the things that I loved doing this week as I was preparing for the Advent season was reading some old Christians. And I loved reading these ancient Christians because they're constantly led to adoration and worship over this. They saw the humility of God next to his infinite greatness in Jesus, in the incarnation when God himself became human for our salvation. Jesus, God most high, experienced human birth. That's unbelievable. God most high experienced human birth surrounded by the animals that he created and whose lives he sustained, surrounded not by the perfume of kings, but by the filth and the smells of the stable. The king of kings was born under tyranny and into poverty. You know, Jonathan Edwards is an 18th century pastor and theologian. He wrote in his sermon, The Excellency of Christ, about these contrasts I'm talking about. And he said this, Christ as he is God is infinitely great and high above all. He is higher than the kings of the earth, for he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is higher than the heavens and higher than the highest angels of heaven. And yet, he is one of infinite condescension. None are so low or inferior, but Christ's condescension is sufficient to take a gracious notice of them. He condescends not only to the angels, humbling himself to behold the things that are done in heaven, but he also condescends to such poor creatures as men. And that not only so as to take notice of princes and of great men, but of those that are of meanest rank and degree, the poor of the world. Such as are commonly despised by their fellow creatures, Christ does not despise. Again, when I was driving my son to school this week, we, we drove past, uh, drove through the downtown east side and, and we stopped at a light and, and my son was looking at the window at some of the attics that were on the corner and, and were, were shooting up and he's asking me some questions about them. And I talked about the way that Uncle Heath, one of the staff members here at, at Christ City Church, how, how these are some of his friends and how he loves these people, how he cares for them. And Arian said, oh, I don't want to be with stinky drug people. <laughs> and we talked about the incarnation. We talked about the condescension of God to us. 
And that word condescension, I mean, it's a weird word in our culture. We just use it negatively. But condescension really just means humbling yourself, making yourself lower than you are to meet with somebody. I mean, the farthest distance that I have to do this is just talking to my kids, getting on my knees. But God left heaven to be born, to condescend to us and to save us. And he did it because he loves us. Grace City, he did it in compassion for you, in mercy for you who largely are responsible for the things in your life that are causing your suffering. Not all of them. The rest of them are caused by us. <laughs> the rest of the sinners in the room. And God entered into this reality to save us out of love. And I think the only appropriate response to this God then is worship. It's the only way to respond rightly to who Jesus is. I want to share another ancient Christian with you. This one's John Chrysostom. He's a fourth century bishop in Constantinople. And he wrote about the, the humble and the poor running to Jesus, running after him to worship him in this beautiful way in the sermon that he wrote. As all sinners came to see the Lamb of God who takes upon himself the sin of the world. Magi accompanying, shepherds praising, tax collectors speaking the good news, prostitutes bearing perfume, Samaritans thirsting for the fountain of life, the Canaanite woman with undoubting faith. Since everyone else then is exalting, I too want to exalt, and I do, Christ City. I want to dance. I desire to celebrate. But I dance not by striking a lyre, not by shaking a thyrsus. I have no idea what that is. You have to ask the guy who lived in, in ancient Turkey. Not with flutes, not by lighting torches, but in place of the musical instruments, I bear the swaddling clothes of the Christ. For these are my hope. These my life. These my salvation. That the Son of God would come taking on human flesh. These my flute, these my lyre, and still I come bearing these so that after receiving the power of words by their power, I may say together with the angels, glory in the highest be to God and with the shepherds and peace on earth and goodwill among men. Today, the one who is inexplicably begotten from the father is born from a virgin, inexpressibly for my sake. Amen. Jesus is wonderful because he's God most high become low out of love for us to save us. And Christ City, having our lives changed by this Jesus is the one thing we need. It's the one thing our city and this world needs. It's the only place peace on earth is going to grow and increase. You know, this week I was out for a jog um, and, I, and I ran past a plan your city or shape your city office. Have you guys seen those here around Vancouver when there's a big development going in? You can see the shape your city offices. And I was running, and I, you know, I was paying attention to my time, looking at my watch and all these things, but I like, I got to stop. And I stopped and I took a look in and I saw these development plans for the Jericho barracks area that were on the wall. And I went and I looked at what was going on. And to be honest, I was shaken by them. 
To be honest, I was shaken by them because I looked at plans for 30-story high-rises that will be overlooking Jericho Beach. And I was just suddenly confronted with the way that this city is changing. The way that this neighborhood that I'm new to, I've only been here for three and a half years, isn't always going to be the way that I've, I'm growing to, to love it. And it's kind of quaintness in, in Kitsilano. But it's going to be changing. And I thought, first of all, what an incredible opportunity for ministry. What an opportunity that 20 to 30,000 new people, maybe more, are moving into this area in the next 10 to 20 years. That's amazing. And I thought at the same time, you know, it's going to be a lot harder than I thought it was. Raising my kids in the city is going to be a little tougher than maybe I expected. And as I was speaking to this incredible city planner about these changes, she was awesome. I, I don't know if all city planners are like her. She was wonderful. The conversation just, you know, turned from, from the city to, to ethics and to the way that we want to build the city for good and what, what things we have to contend with. And we were talking about these things and she, had, she, said, she said, you know, I love Vancouver, but sometimes I feel like Vancouver doesn't love me back. She was being really honest about it. And we were talking about the way that families are often squeezed out of the city in this process. When people don't feel loved back, they leave. It's just easier to put ourselves first. Christ City, it's easy in our friendships to put ourselves first. So that when it's hard and when we're not loved back, we just leave the friendship. It's easy to do that in our families, in our marriages. It's easy to do that in this city and in our neighborhoods and in this world. When we encounter the poor and the broken and the vulnerable and we're not loved back, we'll just leave. Leaving only adds to the brokenness in this world. It only makes it worse. So what if instead we were filled with the power of a greater love? What if we were filled with the power of a greater love to give ourselves the broken and the hurting, to commit to hard places and difficult people for their good, even though it costs us? Grace City, do you know what this city needs more than anything else? It needs people who have, who have encountered the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. The living God in the person of Jesus Christ who has entered into our history of suffering and sin. Who has touched the hope and the longing in our hearts showing that he is the one that we are longing for. The one who is softening us by his humility and his compassion and his love so that we're, we're being shaped by him and by the power of his Holy Spirit to become like him in this world. Let me leave you with a challenge this morning. This Advent season, don't set your hope on anything but Jesus. Don't set your hope on anything but Jesus. There's lots of distractions. There's lots of suffering. There's lots of events. Christ City, hope in Jesus. I'm praying that you would see him as he truly is. 
that you would be caught up in worship and adoration of him. And that by that worship and adoration, the Holy Spirit would change you. So you would, little by little, be filled with his love. So you'd be sent out into Vancouver for the good of your neighbors. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we, we need you. We need to see Jesus. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to change our lives. And Father, we've learned as we've looked at this text that just like beleaguered Bethlehem had these prophecies about you full of longing and hope, Lord, that we too can come to you with our longings and with our hope and that you love to meet us there. So Father, we ask, would you answer our prayer? Would you shape us to be more like Jesus here at Christ City Church? And would you send us out into our neighborhoods for good, full of the love of God by the Holy Spirit? And we ask these things for your eternal glory that all might see Jesus and bow before him in worship and adoration.